Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Good afternoon and welcome to Engage for Success Radio, show number 265, How to Get Your Workforce to Give Candid Feedback. So today we're going to be talking about how to put a value on engagement and how to get your workforce to give you that candid feedback. I'm Jo Dodds, your host for today. I'm an engagement consultant working within the Engage for Success core team. The Engage for Success movement is an inclusive movement committed to the idea that there is a better way to work by releasing more of the capability and potential of people at work. We spread the word about employee engagement and shine a light on good practice, widely supported across the UK, involving the public, private and third sectors. If you go to our website, which is engageforsuccess.org, you can use the link at the bottom of the page to join our newsletter list and also our social media links are there too. So my guest today is Peter Clark, who's co-founder of ClearSight, and that's ClearSight with a Q. <laughs> and I sort of want to say it's Q- Q- ClearSight, spelled S-I-T-E at the end as well, because it's all plays on words here. So um, hello, Peter. Thanks for joining me. Oh, and now I can't hear you. Hang on. Try again. I bet I can hear you now. Hello. Hello, Joe. Oh, yes, you are there. <laughs> there we go. Yes, excellent. Do you want to try that again? <laughs> Hi, Joe. How are you today? <laughs> yeah, good. Thank you for joining me. Oh, dear. Technology, eh? So, start by telling us a bit about who you are, Peter, and who ClearSight are and what you do. Yeah, so um, I'm the co-founder of ClearSight, which means I helped set it up with uh, another guy called Alex. And we really put the company together because we spent an enormous amount of time advising some of the world's largest organizations about how to create more effective workforces that can uh, fundamentally deliver on their strategy. And what we found a lot of time was that there wasn't a lot of data out there. And uh, we felt that the key to that was building a software. So we created ClearSight and it does three things particularly well. It does hindsight gathers up all of the data from an organization, presents it succinctly so you have a complete view of the past. It has Foresight, a predictive tool, which uses that information to allow you to structure initiatives and to predict the behavior of people. And probably what's most interesting uh, for our conversation today is Insight, the ability to ang- uh, analyze the language of people to understand really what they're saying so you can listen more clearly to who they are. And, and the purpose of all of that is because we have a similar belief and um, that happier people are fundamentally more creative more productive and build more successful companies i think the key to doing that is by making smarter informed choices about them hence why we are a people analytics software platform and i think you managed to do all of that explanation which without using the the phrase big data which is a bit of a a buzzword (laughs) uh, in relation to analytics within organizations as we know um but i think always sort of um strikes a, a sort of um a scary moment for people uh, quite often, I think, uh, in uh, HR within organisations because it just sounds quite daunting. Um, mm. Already just by saying, you know, the, the, the hindsight, the foresight and the insight, you've, you've made it sound um, a bit more organised, a, a bit easier to understand because there's just three sections. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, yeah. <laughs> so that's good. Um, but t- tell us a bit more about the importance of having this, this data for organizations and, and why it shouldn't be scary for, for HR people. 
Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think there is an innate fear about data amongst HR teams and people teams, and I think that's um, natural because we are really interested in people and we want to hear them clearly and treat them as humans. And data automatically makes us think that we are doing the opposite of that, um, that we're treating them as numbers. But actually, I I think. Why am I so passionate about analytics is because data has some really interesting properties about it. Number one is that it's incredibly equal, that we gather the same information, especially if we're doing a survey, about everybody equally and that their voices are equally represented that data. Um, secondly, that data can often reveal hidden truths that people are maybe reluctant to talk about in a one-on-one -on -one situation. Uh, such as the stress of doing an enormous amount of overtime. We can compile that data from lots of HR systems. And the third thing that I think is really important is that data doesn't have to be complex anymore. Um, I think that's why we built software. It's because we understood that there's an, a fear around data, especially large volumes of data, because it sounds complex, put it all into one place and organize it. But that's why machines are really, really good. Computers are really good because they can make that simple process uh, that's manually hard to achieve. So I'm quite passionate about it because I think it's democratizing, allows you to really get the voices of everybody uh, and understand everybody in the system, um, uh, in an organization through the systems. I think it's really revealing because it shows things which are hidden in data patterns that won't necessarily be revealed by employees themselves. And I don't think it does have to be scary because I think technology is good now. If we think about an iPhone, simple to use, really intuitive, allows you to do enormously complicated things um, using technology, which I think wasn't around five or six years ago. And most of us think mm. about big data as being a massive Excel spreadsheet. It shouldn't be like that. It should be a bit like using your iPhone, something that's easy to use that gives you great insight. Lovely. So how does ClearSight do that? What, what are you gathering? How are you doing it? And then how are you presenting it back? That's like the next 20 minutes, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so the simple answer is we, um, we work with clients in different ways, but um, some of our clients are people who want to understand their employees in every possible way. So if I talk about it in the most expansive way, but um different people go for different things. So some clients we help uh, connect up all of their HR systems. So every time someone takes a training course, they will leave a record of that in the learning system. When someone goes off sick, they may leave a record of that in their absence system. Or if somebody is uh, simply looking to get promoted, they may have recorded their reasons for being uh, chosen for promotion process in uh, the performance management system. And we often find that there could be information about employees in 17 or 18 or 19 different systems in just one employer in one location. So just one employer in the UK. Connecting all of that data up and giving you access to that in a really simple way is really useful. And that's what we call hindsight. It's a complete view of all of your systems information in one place. So you have a total view of the past. So you can start to say, okay, are there some people who have more overtime than others? Can I run a report on that? Can I see that in a nice, simple chart, which I can navigate? Obviously, once you have all of that data, that gives you an enormously insightful platform to explore. 
I've got lots and lots of information, but what's important? And that's why we created Foresights, which we called a predictive tool. But what it really does is it shifts through all of that information and finds interesting patterns, which raises up uh, for the attention of a user. So it says, I've scanned all of this. And if you want to know who is most likely to be sick or take absence in the future, I can tell you, uh, just to continue the overtime example, uh, that it's people who logged more than 40 hours overtime in the last week. That's an enormous amount of overtime. That's almost double the working week. Of course, that's an intuitive pattern we can understand, but other times it can find quite complex patterns in data, such as, for example, sales professionals who've just had an increase in their targets, who also happen to have not had a holiday for the last three months. I can tell you anecdotally for a lot of our clients that the people who are in the sales teams will often be flagged as being more likely to leave, more likely to be absent. So you put all that data together, then you explore it through a tool which can shift out and find interesting answers and also predict what the future could be for your people. But that's a really systems-based view, and that's why we built the third piece of the platform that I referred to, which is uh, Insights. And that's a surveying capability, but it's a surveying capability with a few key differences. But the most important difference is that it has the ability to analyze language. So when I was saying that everyone's scared of data and they prefer to talk to people, what I would always say is that, yes, but it, how can you talk to a hundred people at once or a thousand or even 10,000 or in some of our clients cases over a hundred thousand employees at once and listen to all of their voices equally. So we build survey capability with what we call natural language programming uh, processing. It's simply a machine that can read language, summarize what people are saying and then present that back and then connect it to all of the other data. So if we think about it as a holistic process, from one end to another, we might say, okay, I've connected all my systems data. I found a pattern in that systems data that tells me that one group of people are more likely to go off because of stress-related illnesses. They happen to be people who have a lot of overtime in a sales function, who haven't been promoted for a long time, but have also had an increase in target. And those people all talk about, and then we get into the language data, uh, the same thing. They talk about the fact that the systems aren't helping them do their job. They complain about the target setting process, how commission is allocated to them. Those are all kind of real life examples, but it's when you bring all of that data together, you can get some really good insights and action out of it. Um, but yeah, I, I would really stress that last bit, listening to the voices of people and doing that through technology. So you can listen to them equally, and even though there's a thousand of them, read every single word so that you can understand their voices clearly. I think that sounds so interesting on the basis that you often hear of surveys where organizations are very keen on the numbers of, you know, yes, no, one to five or however they're sort of measuring and yeah. then end up with a ton of, of um, qualitative comments at the end of it, you know, a ton of um, writing that, that they don't really know how to, summarize or how to use or bits get picked out but not all of it gets read or, or or whatever and so the idea of enabling a computer to do that just sounds so fascinating and so what sort of um sort of examples have you, have you found with organizations you've given some already where you sort of connect all that that data up what 
what how does it further enhance that feedback uh with organizations you know on top of having the sort of you know the numbers bit of it that perhaps might have been more common in the past yeah i really good question so i get so frustrated with a lot of surveys because i think they give employee surveys a bad name um so mm. if i take a practical example uh, we had one client came to us, they asked 148 questions. All of them were kind of strongly agree to strongly disagree. Yeah. And at the end of it, they had one open question, which was, any other comments? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but basically, if I've just answered 148 questions, I just want to finish it. So I yeah. drive it no in the last box, close it, and I move <laughs> on. And I'm yeah. just... I'm, tired i'm really tired i've just done all that work so mm. the first thing we say is ask fewer better questions and also think really carefully about the nature of those questions i'm not seeing that one to fives or strongly agrees strongly disagrees are bad questions they should just be used carefully they mm. should be used to create really good continuous measures but if you want to understand somebody you have to ask an open question so let's say the topic of leadership i could ask five questions which is one to five, is the leadership team visible? One to five, do you feel a connection to the leadership team? One to five, and so on and so forth. Different aspects of a leadership team as uh, performance. But if the most important thing about leadership team is actually that they just don't know them as people, unless you ask specifically, do you feel connected to the leadership team on a personal basis, one to five? If, for example, you've already asked 10 other questions, you won't ask that. You won't discover that. Instead, we can ask a really open question, which is, what advice would you give the leadership team if they were sat in front of you? And if you could give them one piece of advice, and people will say all sorts of different things. They, there's no limit they don't have to restrict themselves to one to five. They use language, the most natural way of communicating we have, to express lots of things. And if mm. we just ask a few of those questions, but we think about them really carefully, we gather a huge amount of feedback. We go from actually employees who never have answered a free text or open question uh, previously to um, actually having up to 90% response rates on those because we demonstrate that we are reading every word and that we do present that language back in a structured way to the management team. You then take mm. action off the back of it. And that's really, really important. Absolutely. So how do you, how do you go about understanding those words that, that are being said? So, uh, you know, I, I suppose I can con conceptually imagine, well, it's getting not, you know, crunched by a computer and something comes out the end, <laughs> but yeah. I, I still can't see how that might be different to a long list of, of you know responses that I've been reading in a manual survey for example so what what comes out at the end of it how can you then present it in something that makes sense to the to the management team yeah I know what actually the key is to make it look as close to a format that they are familiar with so um, if they're used to seeing 60% of people agree with the statement the leadership team is doing a good job then we should present our data in a similar way so we say Okay, we've asked that big open question. We've given people the complete freedom to talk about whatever they like. And then we'll say 20% of people complain the management team aren't visible. 15% of the management, 15% uh, of people highlighted the need to understand the personal motivations of the management team. 
five percent of people asked for better clarity on the purpose or vision of the company and we do it in exactly the same way we just say what percentage of people are talking about those different topics but the difference is that we find that they are because they're using open language and free text raising up things that we have never thought to ask them about all sorts of stuff so what's the one thing that would improve your day i can tell you in a recent survey somebody said the food in the canteen is absolutely awful. And then what we did is when we processed all of the answers, we realized that actually that was a huge theme across all sorts of people. But not everybody, just certain locations where they have particularly bad canteens. Another location, they complained about the car parking. Uh, another location, they said the toilet facilities are really inadequate. These sound like trivial things, but they're really important to people. Now, we're never mm. going to do a survey with a closed question where we say, please rate the toilet facilities. I've never seen that question in a survey. <laughs> no, it's a good point. Yeah, yeah. But if you give people the freedom to talk about whatever they feel is important, they will raise up all sorts of stuff. And then we present mm. the information just in the same way we do with a closed question. We say, what mm. percent are your people? And where are they? And what are they talking about? 20% of people in this office say the toilet facilities are disgusting. I think you should do something about it. It's a really basic human need to go to the bathroom and not feel dirtier than when you arrived, when you walk out. <laughs> yeah, I think they're degenerating in this conversation now. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's a rather, it sounds terrible, but, uh, but I think it's a good point. Well, as you say, and, and it's, you know, that, that, um, that, that uh, thing about hygiene factor and everyone always laughs about the fact that it really is about hygiene, but it is something that is an issue. But as you say, you wouldn't ever ask it in a, in a, in a survey, you know, for sure. No. So, so how often do you, do you do those surveys and how do you reflect them back? And do you, and do you use those themes to change the survey in the future? Yeah, as, that's again, three questions in one. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's fine. Um, yeah, we we talk to our clients to try to understand what their listening strategy is. So some clients are most comfortable with kind of a traditional annual census kind of survey. It goes out to everybody all at once. Um, and we talk to them about what their priorities are in terms of what they want to understand from their people. And then we'll go out once a year and we'll ask questions to everybody, which are covering a whole range of topics. We've got other people who want to move closer to a poll strategy, but they'll vary the questions in the poll. So they will cover some questions consistently every quarter or even more frequently than that in some cases. And then they'll have deep dive topics in order to enable action planning. So one month they'll have a deep dive topic on let's say leadership for example or um, to continue the themes that we've touched on here a deep dive topic in environments and facilities to do action planning on those things and at other times they will then rotate across other things they want to gather feedback on for example diversity and inclusion is a huge topic and one that really lends itself to free text analysis it's so hard to describe how people feel about whether they are included and treated fairly at work unless you enable them to just talk in their own language. And we think mm. companies should be asking those questions more often. What is stopping you feeling included at work? How can we make you feel more included at work? What are your experiences when you have felt excluded? And we would recommend that we do some of those topics on an annual basis as well as part of a pulse listening survey. So 
I suppose what I'd say is that it really depends on your listening strategy, what the customer is most familiar with. And then I would also recommend that we then base our questions around a rotation of topics, either to facilitate action planning or measurement of other really important topics like, let's say, inclusion. Mm. So it strikes me that sometimes you might end up with some quite detailed individual feedback depending on the confidence levels of the people filling out the the survey or, or completing the survey yeah. how do how do you keep that confidential whilst ensuring that the feedback does get through yeah that's a really good question i mean so first it's making sure that people are aware of how we are making sure the survey is confidential so we typically agree rules with each customer up front so we say look there is legislation now gdpr uh, the Data Protection Act uh, that has some guidelines in it, and this is how you can interpret that. The simplest, most obvious way is to say that we never reveal results of any survey unless there are at least 10 or more people in any group that we are sharing the results for, or mm-hmm. seven or more people, depending on the, the interpretation of DPA within that organization. And we also, when someone's filling out the survey, we say, yes, we will be analyzing every word of your answers, but we will do so in a confidential way. And if you don't disclose who you are by your answer, in other words, you don't say, my name is Bob, I'm sat next to Jane, and I sit in the South Seamon, floor four of you know, such and such building, and I want to tell you Jane is absolutely terrible. <laughs> At that point, <laughs> they have revealed themselves through their answer. If they keep mm. their answers confidential, then we can ensure that those answers are treated confidentially. We can then present it back in groups, I could do that through dashboards for every manager in the business so they've got a view of exactly what's going on in their area. Or we can do that within executive committee presentations. But the important thing is that we establish those rules up front, make sure every employee knows what those rules are, and also knows how they uh, knows, know how they can protect their own confidentiality by not disclosing revealing answers themselves. Mm-hmm. So going back to the question where I did my usual ask three and one go. I was asking about do you adjust questions based on this extra information you might get through the sort of more wide-ranging answers? I mean, it sort of strikes me that you want to compare survey on survey or year on year and changing the questions that isn't going to enable you to do that. But then on the other hand, mm. dogmatically sticking to certain questions isn't necessarily going to serve the the client. You're right. Sorry, you're right. You're three in one, and I missed one of them. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, why you ask multiple questions. I, I learned that many years ago, but I just ignore it. <laughs> no, well, I, it's not that I wanted to ignore it. Um, so let me let me try and come back to that. So we would say some questions you should ask consistently. That gives you a consistent measure of whether you are improving things or not. You should select those questions to see whether they are good questions or not. In other words, are they predictive of future behavior? So we use the foresight tool to understand how good is this question in terms of predicting whether someone is more likely to be uh, a better performer or to remain in the business for longer, i.e. not leave, et cetera, et cetera. So we find if you look at a lot of questions, some questions are highly predictive of whether someone is likely to leave in the near future. Um, so we say that is a better indicator of what is engagement trying to achieve as a measure, whether people are going to stay in the business, whether they are going to be productive in that business and then turn up each day. 
So we'll prioritize those questions, select a subset of those, let's say six or 10 at most, which we will then ask regularly in order to create a continuous measure. Other questions we will rotate based on the feedback of previous surveys. So if we say, what advice would you give to the leadership team? And they say, you're just really bad about communication. Then we might then do some more detailed questions and what we call a deep dive. So, okay, you gave us some negative feedback about communication leadership team. If we were to do a podcast, would you guys tune into that? What topics would you want to cover? If we were to do a roadshow, what would you want us to do uh, in terms of the format of that? Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. And then off the back of that, we then instigate action planning. So you're right. You should ask a question. You should follow up to get good action planning in a deep dive. You should also ask some questions consistently to get a good measure. But you must make sure they're good questions. In other words, they're predictive questions, not an organization on average, but the specific organization we serve. Because we see different questions are more or less predictive for different clients, depending mm. on what the topics are that are affecting their people. Mm. And we said at the beginning of the show uh, that we were talking about how to get your workforce, workforce to give you candid feedback and to put a value on engagement. I guess that's what you're saying, mm. that the value on engagement within organizations is different depending on the organization. It, it's the value can definitely be quantified. So I know, for example, that one of our clients that we see a very, very strong predictive uh, relationship between the question, is the leadership team visible and accessible? And whether they then see high increases in absence or even attrition. Let's stick with those two. Mm. But we've also seen correlations in sales performance, operational performance, et cetera, et cetera. And then we can value that for them and say, if you just move uh, 20% of the people who strongly disagree with that statement to just disagree with it, so just take them from the worst to just a terrible answer, that's worth 2 million quid. So why don't we go after that question? So we will be very, very specific about not just the overall value of improving engagement for that client, but say question by question, which ones of those are most predictive, therefore most valuable, and therefore the ones prioritized for action planning. And that's interesting because the example you've just shared is actually going from being really bad to being not quite so bad, as opposed to striving for like the best of everything, which I guess we usually imagine is what we would be aiming for with this. So yeah. that's a really interesting example that, that you might just, move something that's really bad to not being quite so bad and actually that's more valuable than having 90% scores on everything. That is often the case. I've got to tell you that actually it's the people who are most disaffected who are most likely to show a good return on engagement. People who are quite strongly uh, engaged versus very strongly engaged, there's not a really huge difference in their behaviors some of the Mm. time. Um, For other clients, for some questions, that can be predictive, but in our general experience, it's about finding the people who are really upset with specific issues and showing progress on those that will deliver you the biggest value improvement. Mm. There is a, there's a diminishing return, if you see what I mean. It's like where you can reach a, yeah. a level of engagement at which point that person is just fundamentally satisfied with work. And, and you know, that, I think that's in, intuitively, you know, you would sort of imagine that, that, yes, the idea would be to get the people who are really unhappy or you know, really disengaged and, and move that up. But, but you probably wouldn't think to focus on that, but for the, for the evidence and the, and the financial 
evidence that you're, that's what, that you're just presenting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why we're so focused on doing it question by question as well, because some questions, you can have really negative scores, but actually people don't care about it. It doesn't seem to prompt to see whether they're leaving or not. So what mm. we're all about is finding the questions which really matter, which seem to correlate to future behavior, looking at the people within that question who've scored it differently and saying, where will we see the biggest improvement in terms of what we care about, which is helping people move into better behaviors in the future. So, and, and that's how you do really good action planning because you might have mm. disastrous scores, a really low score on something, and then you'll focus on that, but you shouldn't because nobody cares about it. So that's why we don't talk about benchmarks a lot. What we talk about is setting targets for yourself, which help you do what really matters for your people, helps your business be really unique because benchmarks just create average businesses. Then drive action planning by listening to all of the words and the feedback that people give you to make an improvement on that score. It will achieve mm. more value for the business. It will make people happier overall. Mm. That's a brilliant ending to the show, Peter. Thank you. I, I'm not quite sure how we <laughs> made that happen. It was perfect. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Excellent. So um, just to let you know, next week um, I'll be back talking with Sally Earnshaw of Blue Sky talking about what drives exceptional customer service. So a bit of a change of topic uh, for next week. And uh, thank you for joining us. Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work.